My name is John Ramo, a PhD candidate at New York University, here interviewing Professor Christopher S. Salenza for the Journal of the History of Ideas podcast, In Theory. Professor Salenza recently published The Italian Renaissance and the Origins of the Modern Humanities in Intellectual History, 1400 to 1800, for Cambridge University Press. A wonderfully accessible as well as erudite book, Salenza's History of the Humanities roots the origins of many of our own practices in several generations of scholars who identified themselves as philologists, or as it may be in the case of Descartes, scholars rejecting philology. That is, Salenza reveals a tradition with strong clashing personalities, vibrant polemics, contesting methodologies, and a powerful sense of possibility behind what many of us may have taken as a neutral set of tools and ideas. The book is exceptionally well-written, a joy to read for specialists and non-specialists alike, and exciting as a call to re-examine what we do as scholars. I hope you all enjoy the following interview, and consider picking up a copy of The Italian Renaissance and the Origins of the Modern Humanities in Intellectual History, 1400-1800. to Professor Christopher Salenza, James B. Knapp, Dean, Krieger School of Arts and Sciences, Professor of History and Classics at Johns Hopkins University, as well as the author of The Italian Renaissance and the Origins of the Modern Humanities, an Intellectual History, 1400 to 1800, published by Cambridge University Press in November 2021. Professor Salenza's latest monograph traces a larger narrative of modern humanistic scholarship to a series of precise moments and careers in early modern Italy and France. He connects the grand subject of our talk today, philology, with three narratives, the development of key habits, practices, and perhaps unexpectedly, emotions and moods involved in the interpretation of texts, then the impact of the modern book on these same professionalized and codified means of reading, and finally, the de decoupling of philology with philosophy, both natural and metaphysical, in a manner that we ourselves can recognize today. In the process, Professor Salenza introduces us to a series of wonderfully colorful persons as much as intellects, including Lorenzo Valla, Angelo Poliziano, the lesser known, even for specialists, Angelo de Cembrio, a figure less often considered a philologist, that is René de, uh, Descartes, and finally generations of French scholars from Montfaucon, Hardouin, D'Alembert, and Diderot, before reaching the amateur philologist Thomas Jefferson. Professor Salenza, welcome and thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. To begin with, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely, thank you. So I'm um, by training a historian and a classicist, and I've had an interest for a long time in the Italian 15th century. And I started out in some of my early work um, doing things like working in the Vatican Library, um, in libraries like the Laurentian Library in Florence, um, the French National Library, the British Library. In other words, some of the places that have, as Paul Oscar Christeller, I think, noted long ago, the finest manuscript holdings in the Latin literature of the 15th century. And gradually, as I, you know, I did that kind of work, I edited some of those texts and translated them from Latin into English. And as I, I started doing that work, I started to kind of think outward in concentric circles. So what was this work, what discipline was this work a part of? Um, it kind of started out as being a part of history, and I noticed that it wasn't really a part of organized historiography in the U.S. anymore. So I tried to figure out, well, why was that? And I gradually started thinking about 
the history of institutions and, and how the field in its current shape was born. Um, and then ever since then, I, I wrote a book in 2004 called The Lost Italian Renaissance, in which I talked about some of that material. And since then, I've, I've written on different topics and I've tried to write for different audiences. Um, and so I've written two kind of small general, uh, very general reader biographies, one on Petrarch, the other on Machiavelli. And then of late, I've turned back to the 15th century. And in this current book that we're talking about, I, I, I really felt like I wanted to go beyond the 15th century and see where things had gone. Otherwise, I'm, as I said, I'm a historian. I'm also the Dean of a School of Arts and Sciences, the School of Arts and Sciences at Johns Hopkins, where we've got um, you know, 22 different departments, 40 interdisciplinary programs, well over 500 faculty members of different sorts, um, about a thousand PhD students, um, you know, lots and lots of undergraduate students. And so it's a very vibrant place. Um, and in that sense, it's a, it's a busy, but, but vibrant and interesting life on that front. So I would say at this point, I can say my, my, my main day job is that of an administrator, but I continue to work early in the mornings on scholarship of different sorts and writing. And here, I think the book is really wonderful in that you are yourself a philologist and with your interest as an historian in institutions, bridging the institutions and the practices and what history binds them together is one of the achievements of this book. And the Italian Renaissance and the origins of the modern humanities is also not just this sort of master, masterful historical work, it's also an intervention into broader conversations taking place in academia today, especially turning on the history of the humanities and very crucially, the history of philology. From scholars such as Arnoldo Momigliano and Mark Fumaroli to Anthony Grafton, James Turner, Francoise Vaquet, uh, Chad Wellman, Renz Bod, Emily Levine, Levine, and others, philology has assumed an increasingly uh, urgent importance in understanding what we do as scholars and where we come from uh, as intellectuals. It's also a notoriously difficult word to pin down philology as it spans practices, ideas, and as you very, very originally shown this, this book, also moods and emotions. Can you offer our readers your own definitions and tell us what brought you to write about philology in particular? Here I was also quickly very struck by how you frame philology as a question of constitution and voices, among some of the other definitions scattered in the book, but I was hoping you could give us your own working definitions of philology here and why you chose to write about it. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I, I think there, there's a lot I could say about that, and I appreciate the, the question. I think that I guess a few things. First, the names you mentioned are all are all so important um, in, in the kind of work that I and others who do this sort of work do. Um, one of the, you know, I left Johns Hopkins for a while to go to another institution. And one of the last seminars I taught um, was one in which I actually taught the works of James Turner, you know, his brilliant book on philology, Renz Bod's History of the Humanities, and then uh, another book that was an edited collection by Sheldon Pollock and others called World Philology. And I felt that was, a, those are really eye-opening. And just, you know, this was a graduate seminar and just um, hearing the students' reactions to them and thinking things through with them, it just struck me that this was a very kind of promising way to, to look at the world. Um, especially World Philology's impact on me was very important because the word philology, much like the word philosophy, has had um, people who I think have often unarticulated but very strong assumptions about what it is. 
right? What it means, what, what are the kinds of things a philologist does versus what are the kinds of things that a philosopher does, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing that I had learned from writing a little bit about the history of the word philosophy was that it was just much more malleable in the past. And there were reasons for that. And I actually get into some of them in this book and I've done that in some other publications. Similarly with philology, it feels to me like it's an almost open word. Um, it's a word that first of all, as I, as I point out in the book has lost a little bit of its mojo, which is to say, I think that the brilliant work of Turner and, and um, Sheldon Pollock and others has brought it back into prominence, but it, you know, it's a strange thing, I think, that the American Philological Association, the, you know, the professional association for the discipline of classics, decided to drop that term and rechristen itself the Society for Classical Studies precisely because they thought the word philology was so, you know, out of use, right? So definitions, I think Sheldon Pollock in the beginning of his World Philology writes this brilliant introduction, which I recommend to everybody as just a great um, way of thinking about the humanities in general. And what he talks about there when he defines philology is just making sense of texts. And one of the reasons I think it works so well is, you know, there's a few reasons for it. The first is that in his project, this project of editing all of these different contributions on philology that span things that might seem familiar to Western um, historians of Western intellectual history, like the Alexandrians in Greece or certain aspects of philology um, in ancient Rome, when you see those put together with um, instances of Chinese and Japanese ways of approaching texts, Arabic ways, you know, parts of um, the Jewish tradition in late antiquity, um, when you see that in, 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 in more modern terms, you realize that there's just this real panoply of experiences out there, all of them though unified by this idea of making sense of texts. So on the one hand, you could say that, well, that makes it very vague, right? When you think of philology, classical philology, there are techniques you know, that have been developed over time that can be taught you know, how to uh, you know, get back to notionally what was the most original text that's based on what we can at least hope to assume was some kind of intention of an author. But I just felt it was much more productive for the humanities now to think about the many different ways that reading texts, close readings, um, and paying attention to the details of texts really can help us think differently about the humanities. When it comes to the constitutional question, you know, that's an interesting one. Um, I raised that in a chapter on Lorenzo Valla because you know, he, he does some very important, I think, foundational work on um, you know, decoding certain texts that had been, um, you know, if not mysterious to people, you know, difficult of interpretation. And I, I think the reason I called it a constitutional moment there was um, you know, he is effectively, um, in fact, I can even turn to the passage um, you know, it, it, for him, it was really about, um, you know, how do we think about the church? And, and here I'm talking about this work of his called the Annotations on the New Testament, where although he doesn't definitively advocate a new translation of the Latin Vulgate New Testament, which was based on the Koine Greek of the original, he, he talks about words and he talks about how, you know, the Latin translation might not quite match the meaning of the Greek word. And in doing so, I kind of present him as opening up this Pandora's box, right? Which leads to slews of new interpretations of, of the Bible. But the reason I call it a constitutional question is because, you know, the word constitution really means how things are constituted. 
time. And you know, when how things are constituted are really reliant on texts, as I write in the book, philology can't be far behind. And it, and it really becomes a question of who gets to give the right interpretation, right? Who, who is empowered to do that? And so I think all around us right now, just to wrap up on this one, I think we can say that we're surrounded by texts of all sorts. They're coming at us in ways that I think we've not quite been prepared for, which is to say they're coming at us on screens, on phones, on tablets, on computers. Something about the modality in which these new texts exist makes them almost of necessity impermanent, which is in a sense the opposite of what traditional classical philology tries to do, which is make something permanent. And so I think we need, we need to be thinking about making sense of texts more than ever right now. I think it's a very, very important thing. Our own society is constituted in a way by people who have interpretations of broadly speaking texts, right? And, and so we have to think really hard about what the history is of doing that kind of interpretation. And that's why I thought it was worthwhile to dip back into these seemingly sometimes very remote thinkers um, to try to get to, to get to a new place in doing that. And you mentioned just now Lorenzo Valla, who is in many ways a central figure of this book and also throughout your scholarly work. Uh, he's an absolutely fascinating figure. It's, it's almost an achievement not to let him dominate a book, I think. Uh, I am a member of the Lorenzo Valla fan club. It's a very small club. We're very uh, passionate. Uh, and he's just kind of wonderfully grumpy in some ways. Uh, what scholar doesn't think of just conclusively winning an argument or debate just as thoroughly as he did, very famously discrediting the donation of Constantine, uh, an eighth century forgery of an imperial decree, which transferred political authority from Constantine the Great to the Western Church um, in Western Europe. Now, Val has been a figure, just a conference, a constant point of reference in your work. You, you've returned to him. You always discover something new when you do. And you make him, in, in many ways, the, the beginning uh, figure, the, the beginning point for your history. So can you tell us a little more about your relationship to Vala, your intellectual relationship, and why you chose him to begin this book? Yes, it is a long history. In fact, I would say that Vala is arguably one of the reasons I, I went into this field. I was an undergraduate student at the State University of New York at Albany, and I took a course with John Montesani. And at the time, I actually thought I wanted to be a wrestling coach, believe it or not. And there was a, a, a club there in Albany where um, you know, some of the Olympic styles of wrestling were taught. And that was one of the reasons I went there. It was all very kind of young of me. So I took this course in Renaissance history with John Montesani. And we read the texts in the Christeller, Kassir, and Randall anthology called Renaissance Philosophy of Man. And in that anthology, there is, I think still, you know, a fine translation of Vala's On Free Will, his De Libero Arbitrio. Um, and I remember just becoming enchanted by that text um, and talking about it uh, ad nauseum with John Montesani at the time. And so I've had a very long history with Vala. Uh, I would say another mentor of mine was a great now deceased scholar, um, who's a Dominican named Salvatore Camporeale, whom I got to know when I was in graduate school at Duke, and he taught a visiting seminar at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And um, I worked at that time with him on Vala's annotations to the New Testament. It led to my first published article. And so I have a very long kind of emotionally laden history with Vala. And I felt that as time has gone by, I've gotten to know him better. Um, been very impressed by, by the work of so many different people, Mariangelo Rigoviosi, 
you know, whole equipe that she has um, in Italy. Um, my good friend Lodi Nauta, who wrote, I think, a very brilliant book on Vala. Um, but I have always found something new in him when I've returned to him. And I think that this time on returning to him, one thing that struck me that I think I had thought a little bit before in my last book too, The Intellectual World of the Italian Renaissance, is that in some ways he epitomizes certain energies that are there in the 15th century. And in some ways he's very much uh, an outsider. Um, I think, for example, that you know, it's not just in his work on the donation of Constantine or in his work uh, on the, his annotations on the Vulgate New Testament, where he critiques the language of scripture, but also in other works of his, where broadly speaking, he's criticizing institutions, practices um, of the Catholic Church at the time. So all that on the one hand. On the other hand, he nonetheless rises up eventually in his life to be um, you know, one of the highest lay officials you could be within the Roman Curia at the time. So that's always been a little bit of a puzzle to me. And I guess when I look, look at him through the eyes of some of his contemporaries or even slightly later figures like Erasmus, Erasmus at one point I note in the book says that, you know, Vala is to be avoided like a dangerous bull. Like he, Erasmus was afraid to cite him, right? As if Vala was too mordant and too. And so it seems like there was this undertow of debate that Vala was engaged with, um, where he really does launch these brilliant and interesting critiques but there must be also a way in which that wasn't his day job, that the higher officials in the church thought, look, people are always squabbling about this or that matter of theology, which in truth, people did argue a lot you know, in, the, in the Middle Ages over theological matters. And I think what's very interesting, you mentioned his treatise on the donation of Constantine. Um, on the one hand, I think now we do, in some ways rightly see it as you know, the most important refutation of the donation of Constantine, the idea of the donation of Constantine. And in my chapter, talking about him and talking about this work, I tried to go even deeper there and think through a way in which he almost misreads the donation of Constantine. And to do that, there, there's a brilliant book by a scholar named Johannes Fried, in which he disaggregates two ways of thinking about the donation of Constantine. One is, um, the idea of the donation itself, which is to say this very militarily successful Emperor Constantine somehow willingly giving all of this you know, property and land and so on to the church, right? You know, just that basic idea, the idea of it over time versus on the other hand, this text, right? Which is clearly written in the eighth, eighth century then eventually gets woven into medieval collections of canon law. And in some ways, those two things have separate fortunes. You know, the idea has one fortune, the text has another fortune. And what's interesting about Bala's intervention is definitive as it seems to us, it doesn't really close the door on this for quite a while. And it's not until later, you know, that, you know, Cesare Baronio, you know, really sort of writes, writes work that, that basically acknowledges the idea that the document as we have it was a forgery. And so it stimulated me to think a lot about um, you know, what, what did the text itself really mean, right? I mean, so obviously if it's written in the eighth century, it's part of a medieval church is trying to give itself legitimacy. The church in many ways has become one of the power brokers in Western Europe and, and will become even more as the debate goes on. 
And, you know, if you were someone who was implicated in the politics of a region like Europe, you would want to have, you know, levers, right? You'd want to be able, let's say, to appoint bishops. Whereas if you were a secular ruler, you'd want to do the same thing. And so, you know, it, it's part of, in some sense, a very long medieval debate. Bala doesn't solve it, interestingly enough. For us, he does. And I think that's interesting as well. When you actually look at the structure of his treatise, it's very oratorical, as he says. And the first part all has to do with um, emotional, common sense type of argumentation. And it's only later in the treatise that he comes to what we might call the more traditionally philological types of critiques. So one thing he does, for example, is he takes on a whole series of what he calls personae. Um, he takes on the persona, for example, of somebody addressing uh, an assembly of kings and rulers. And he asks them in this persona, would any of you ever do something like this? Isn't what all of you do as rulers, isn't all of your intention to gain more land and to gain more power? When have any of you ever willingly given that up? Then he goes on to impersonate Constantine's sons as if they were talking to their father, Constantine, and saying, father, how could you disenfranchise this? How could you give away our inheritance? Right? You know, how could you do something that's so unusual? Then he impersonates the then Pope, Sylvester. And you know, he basically has Sylvester say, you know, even if I wanted to accept this gift, I couldn't. Why? Because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a custodian of the church. I'm not meant to be involved in politics and power and so on. And so when you read through those critiques and when you feel the emotional impact of them, it's almost as if the argument, his argument, which is to say the gravamen of what he's really trying to say as Vala is over. Then he gets to the philological stuff, right? Then he starts analyzing the text. Then he starts showing, oh, you know, this word that's in the document actually didn't exist in Constantine's day. Therefore, it must be inauthentic. For the modern reading of Vala's donation of Constantine, it's those latter parts that are more important. But the truth was clearly for him. I mean, I think the more important emotionally laden arguments came first. And again, I think it's noteworthy that it's not like he writes his treatise, then everybody sort of, you know, um, says, okay, Vala was right, we, we give up on this, right? It continues to be a debate long after he's dead. So I just find he's an endlessly fascinating figure on that front. Um, you know, I think this issue of his, um, I would argue in some sense, kicking off, you know, the, the, you know what becomes the Protestant Reformation. I mean, Salvatore Camporeale really thought everything that all of Luther's thinking really was in some ways there in Vala. I don't know that I would go that far. I don't think Vala was really thinking along those kinds of lines, but I do think that, you know, by his day, the Latin Vulgate had about a thousand years behind it, right? And if somebody like St. Jerome was nervous about putting together a Latin translation of the Greek New Testament, you know, think about what happens a thousand years after that, roughly, when it's become the basis of Western theology, right? When people develop rituals on it, when people write commentaries on it, right? When it's got all this kind of, um, you know, arguably Christian cultural capital behind it. All of a sudden you're saying, you know, wow, you know, these words don't really mean what you think they mean. Um, Often it's just very terse. You know, he's just pointing out that a better translation for this word would be that. But every once in a while he goes so far and I point out one of those instances in the book where you know, he critiques a major practice, right? I mean, he talks about the word metanoia in Greek, which becomes the basis for um, the Catholic doctrine of reconciliation, which consists in current practice as well as in late medieval practice of you know, contrition, 
confession and satisfaction, meaning that you have to be sorry for the thing you've done wrong. You have to confess it to a representative of the church, to a priest. You have to offer satisfaction, whether that's, you know, praying for yourself to be readmitted into the community, offering some kind of, you know, some, some sort of satisfaction back. And Bala points out, well, that's not really there in, in, in the Greek. There's nothing in there that authorizes that sacramental practice. The word metanoia just means kind of changing your mind. It doesn't mean penitence. It doesn't mean this. So, so in a way, I mean, there are times when he really gets into these very, like, truly deep critiques of, of you know, not, not just the church as being too political. I mean, that's something that goes back to Dante and Boccaccio, right, in the Italian imaginary but, you know, really ground level things that come to fruition. And so there too, it just shows you that I think that there's this Pandora's box effect where in intellectual history in general, um, one way of approaching it is what you might call, I think what Jim Hankins always has called the sources and influences model, meaning, you know, I found this source, this source is read by this person, that's a definite influence. Whereas I also think a lot with, you know, our former colleague here at Johns Hopkins, who's still around, John Pocock, who talks eloquently in numerous different places of, you know, the power of ideas to almost be like seeds, right, that float along in the wind, and then sometimes they actually land, and if the ground at the time is fertile, they can take root, and they can grow, and I, and I see Walla as that kind of a thing, and I would just close with this, and I know I'm talking too much about Bull, but I would close by saying, I think there's legitimacy to this view, because you know, the, the manuscript and printing history of his works in the early modern period shows that he wasn't really all that popular. He had one work that was very popular. That was his Elegances of the Latin Language, which was like a grammar textbook for the Latin language. that was really brilliant, was very well used. Um, that had a strong printing history. But all the other works that we know him for today, the donation of Constantine on free will, the other things, they just didn't circulate all that much. But nonetheless, right, you know, you find that there's this fertile ground a little bit later. And we do know that Martin Luther and Ulrich von Hutten and others really did know his work in, in significant ways and cite it and talk about it. So, so I think in that sense, it's just he presents an interesting element because, again, seems to be so meaningful in some ways. But in, to his contemporaries, he obviously was seen as a little bit like, um, again, as Erasmus called him, just a dangerous bull to be avoided, right? Not somebody you wanted to mess with too much. So, and thank you. And what your discussion just now, and also in the book, really alerted me to again is this question of emotion and mood. Uh, if we take the donation of Constantine, uh, both kind of the idea of it, and then kind of the philological battleground of it, while mm -hmm. it seems almost kind of with his philology, kind of almost switch between the two registers. And if it's an outward facing in terms of affect, rhetoric, uh, of emotion of, for his readers, you almost get the sense reading him that he is kind of goading himself. Yes. The logical section as well. And I'm just curious if we can just talk about that emotion or mood as one of the themes of your book with philology. Did it affect his practice at all? What he actually did in kind of the very strict philological sense? Yeah, no, I really, I appreciate that. I've been very influenced by, um, there's a scholarly literature on emotions that has developed that there, there's, you know, um, ancient studies, medieval studies, later early modern studies, people like Bill Reddy um, and others. And I think most recently, um, I find very stimulating the work of the literature scholar Rita Felsky, 
who's written about emotion and mood, especially the mood in which, in which a discipline proceeds. One thing she's written about, just to bring it to the contemporary moment for a second, um, is the mood of suspicion that inculcated a lot of the study of literature, graduate programs in literature in let's say the 80s and 90s and very early 2000s. As if you know, people are coming to study literature because they, they love literature and they wanted to do more and learn more about it. But the first thing that they were inculcated into and taught was that your mood has to be one of suspicion. You have to find the hidden sort of ways in which these texts are doing whatever we think they might be doing. And so the mood in which a discipline is practiced, which in one way I think you can argue means all the unarticulated assumptions that are there, but powerfully present nonetheless are really important. I mean, I have a quotation from her right here I can give you. She writes, the prevailing mood of a discipline accents and inflects our endeavors. The questions we ask, the texts we puzzle over, um, the styles of argument that we are drawn to. Um, that's in her wonderful book, The Limits of Critique. And so this issue of mood and emotion, I think is very important. Now in the case of Vala, right? It, it's, it's kind of obvious, right? He's just really angry, you know, um, all the time. When you get underneath that, um, people have tried to find things in him. This was always one of my slight disagreements with my old friend and dear mentor, Salvatore Camporelli. I mean, Camporelli really thought there was a consistent critique there that Vala had a vision of what a new society would be like. You know, if you could, for example, you know, have the church get out of the business of doing politics and have it go back to the early pre-Constantinian type of Christianity that was about evangelism, that was about humility and so on. I don't know that Vala really had things that well sketched out in his mind. I think he saw things that were wrong. I think though that he also had a very, very big combative ego. Um, and, and, that, and that part of this, you know, so he, he gets into skirmishes with a whole bunch of contemporaries, you know, Poggio Bracciolini being maybe the most noteworthy. Um, but he's also, I think, as, as you said, John, he's kind of sometimes almost goading himself to go farther. Um, and he's arguing with unnamed people often, right? I mean, he, he often is arguing with someone who, whom he will never name, you know, just saying, you seem to say this, well, I say this, right? As if to say, there's always someone oppositional to me and this is how I'm gonna be thinking. Um, so so I, anyway, I, I think that he's, he's an exemplar in, the, in that way of someone who on the one hand, the emotion's very, very close to the surface. But on the other hand, there's these other unarticulated things going on. Anyway, I just think that for me, it, it's, it's become very important. I'd argue it's important for intellectual history, intellectual historians to, to think hard about emotion and mood um, when they're looking at the, the figures that they're studying. And I'm realizing it's a bit unfair to say what I'm about to, um, but you do draw a distinction in the book between the pars destruens or yep. a negative critique and then a pars construens, or a positive one. Mm -hmm. And I found myself really kind of almost wondering, was Vala almost a, just an embodiment of the negative critique? And then the, ne the next big figure in your book, well, there's an intervening figure we'll discuss in a moment, yeah. but the next big positive figure is Angelo Poliziano. And I'm just wondering, is that a useful comparison to kind of think almost of as Vala as the negative critique guy, mm -hmm. so to speak? and Polizano as kind of a positive critique for the rest of the story in the book? Or is that really just too deeply unfair to both? 
It's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, I think Vala is in some ways deconstructive. I mean, I, I use that those two phrases in the book as a way of parsing out two different parts of Vala's, uh, one of his prefaces to his annotations in the New Testament, where on the one hand, he does something de deconstructive to sort of take on the figure of Jerome, the notional translator of the Vulgate New Testament and poke holes and what he's doing, but then try to build up what he was trying to do. And that's the positive part. But I think it, it, there is a way in which we could think of those two figures, Paul and Poliziano, in slightly different ways. I think one of the big differences is in the obvious thing, chronology, but also institutional situation. So chronology, by Poliziano's day, let's say he's most active um, in the 1480s and very early 1490s before he dies, right? By that point, most of the ancient work that we have today to make sense of the classical world was rediscovered by these figures. There's still things that they're looking at and Poliziano is always very proud when he's gonna read something that nobody else had read. For example, you know, he, he loved to think about Aristotle in his later years um, and we can talk about why and how. He was always very proud, for example, when he could bring to bear in interpreting Aristotle what we call today the late ancient commentators on Aristotle. These are thinkers from late antiquity who wrote these very dense commentators on Aristotle. And but Poliziano would say, I can do this because I read Greek and I found these texts. And you, you people that I'm are, are trying to say I'm not worthy to study out Aristotle because I'm not a philosopher, you can't do that. So in that sense, you know, there's a lot of there's some things that they're still kind of quote unquote discovering. But for the most part, almost everything we have for the classical world was by that point discovered. So I think one of my implicit arguments in the book, it's a little explicit, little explicit, is that the overriding question starts to become, what do we do now? Um, and, and I do think you even see changes in Latinity. I mean, with Poliziano, you see that he really starts to write a slightly more recherche style of Latin, almost as if it's for connoisseurs, almost as if it's for people who can get not quite the in-joke, but the, the very rare reference. I noticed this, for example, in his treatise, the Lamia, which is um, an opening oration to a university course he was going to give on Aristotle's prior analytics. Um, you know, um, you know, he's clearly trying to sort of, you know, lead in a new direction to do something um, that's different from what people did before. Um, and so, in that sense, I do think there is a, a positive, I would argue, kind of forward-looking nature in Poliziano, in the sense that. I think there's something else implicit there with him, which is a kind of melancholy that pervades some of his work. And, you know, I think people could argue with me about this, but what that just speaks to me is this, that once you realize that, okay, we've now rediscovered all of this work about antiquity, we also realize how much we don't know, right? How much we're missing, um, you know, how much for everyone Greek tragedy we have, there may be 10 that are missing, right? And so it's as if by discovering these presences, you're also discovering these vast absences. And so it starts to become this different kind of a project. And one of the things I argue in the book is that out of Poliziano's circle really comes this notion of building professional scholarship. Now, he could never have predicted the shape that institutions would take in the following centuries, but there are these hints there one of the ways, for example, that he signs off in his marginal annotations when he 
is working on specific texts. He says, very strange phrase. He says, Angeli Poliziani et Amicorum, um, of or the property of Angelo Poliziano and, and his friends. What does he mean by that? I, I mean, obviously, in one sense, he means the, the circle that he has around him. They might be students, they might be fellow you know, participants in his discussions. But I think a way you can read that is also that he's almost being prospective. He's looking forward to an unnamed community of scholars, right? The great scholar Armando Petrucci noted about Poliziano that in some ways he represents um, a very interesting new generation of a professional scholar in this way, his relationship to libraries. He's not someone anymore who's working only in one library. Now he does of course work in you know, the Medici Library in Florence. Um, he works, um, uh, you know, but, but he also travels and he goes elsewhere. Um, and of course, other humanists have done that before him too. But with Poliziano, the sense that Petrucci had, and I think is right, is that there's now like an assumed library, right? In other words, you know, we may all be working on this different text. The question again, what do we do now? And that's why I think I argue that one of his students, Petrus Granitas, begins to create this idea of modern seeming reference books. That is to say, really, really, um, I would say restrictive encyclopedic type works. A little bit different as I show with some hints here and there from certain types of medieval encyclopedias. These are instead works that, for example, one of the things that Cronitas wrote was a work called De Poetis Latinis on Latin poets, in which he actually does a pretty darn good job of giving a chronologically accurate um, set of very short, um, very fact-based lives of ancient Latin poets um, from the earliest Latin poets through the early Christian poets. And it was hugely successful. You know, it's not the most exciting work when you read it, but it's hugely successful. It's reprinted numerous times through the 18th century. And he was, you know, arguably Poliziano's best student, his closest student in some ways. And so I think in that sense, the way you pointed it out, John, is if there's in Balo, there's maybe a little bit more of a deconstructive or negative coloration and with Poliziano, there's a little bit more of a positive prospective culture of building. I think that's basically right. I think that is, that's a good way to think about it. So as you were uh, explaining this, a quote from Gibbon came to mind, which I just have to share. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. So to quote him, perhaps a church in the seat of the patriarchs might be enriched with a repository of books. But if the ponderous mass of Arian and Monophysite controversy were indeed consumed in the public baths, a philosopher may allow, with a smile, that it was ultimately devoted to the benefit of mankind. I sincerely regret the more valuable libraries which have been involved in the ruin of the Roman Empire. But when I seriously compute the lapse of ages, the waste of ignorance, and the calamities of war, our treasures, rather than our losses, are the objects of my surprise. And it's that question of treasures uh, with philology, with the philological endeavor, but I think also takes us to an interesting figure before Polizzano, Angelo uh, yeah. Decembro. Yeah. And he's a fascinating figure in that you demonstrate how important his library and also a rising canon of classical literature was really to his identity. Uh, the book really does a, really explores a wonderful anecdote in that when all of his belongings were lost or stolen, how, how much it meant to him, how much of his identity was built on really having his own private library. Um, also, as a, he was a bit of an outsider figure in terms of not being connected with the world of universities uh, that you show is really especially coming into the poor, becoming larger. Mm -hmm. 
And with Dechembro, you write, we have a sense of the way philology really, as opposed to ideally, proceeded in fits and starts by trial and error, and with the correct assumptions either mixed in with false ones, or though they were indeed correct as assumptions, unable to be proved by the limited empirical means and available. And here, I'm, I'd like you to comment on how representative Dechembro was as one of, not of the people, not one of the scholars in the very forefront of this sort of endeavor, but somebody sort of alongside them, kind of a little bit behind, and almost kind of, if I can say it, almost a second-rate figure in terms of kind of communicating these same moods and this same kind of melancholy. Yeah, no, he's he is a fascinating figure. So you know, the Dechembrio family could count a couple of notable figures. First, the the his father Uberto Dechembrio was the first translator of Plato's Republic. He had a, a more famous brother, Pier Candido de Cembria, who was actually in correspondence with Valla and had some accomplishments of his own. Angelo de Cembrio, on the other hand, um, is, is today anyway, known for very little. Um, the work for which he's best known is a work called On Literary Polish, De Politia Literaria. Um, it's a work that you know our good friend, Anthony Grafton has taken a great interest in. Um, and, and that work, the, the quotation that you mentioned from my book comes um, when I'm talking through parts of that work on literary polish. What the work is, it's, an, it's, a, it's a dialogue. Um, it's an idealized dialogue the, the uh, set at the court of Ferrara um, during the ascendancy of Leonello d'Este. And Leonello d'Este is made into the lead interlocutor in this dialogue. And he's made into kind of this almost perfectly learned ruler, right? He dresses well, he knows all the right things to say, he knows all the literature, he asks the other interlocutors questions and then he pronounces on things. And one big part, the first large part of this dialogue is on basically how do you found a library? Like what kinds of books should you put in it? What belongs in the library? What doesn't belong in the library? And there's this one intriguing section, this intriguing chapter on how do you tell when things are forgeries? Um, you know, how do you do it? You know, what, what kinds of things can you look for? And, you know, one of the things that I found most noteworthy about it is that in one sense, there's a, 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 a very big um, uh, mistake there, which is this, that among the many texts that they talk about in this chapter, which might or might not be forgeries, um, they talk about two Ciceronian texts. They talk about a text that in their day was often thought to be attributed to Cicero, the rhetoric to Herennius, the rhetorica Herennium, and then Cicero's on invention, De Inventione. Now, today, philologists think that the De Inventione is an authentic work of Cicero's, whereas the rhetoric to Herennius, the rhetorica Herennium, for various reasons, is thought to be not by Cicero. Um, in their day, it was disputed, right? Um, the interlocutors led by Leonello make arguments, basically arguing for the opposite. But they have reasons for arguing it. And, and among all of the things they talk about, some of, the, some of the arguments aren't bad ones. You know, the interlocutors talk, for example, about manuscripts that might have an extra section added onto the end. Um, they talk about what we would we would discuss as interpolation interpolations, right? You know, um, you know, pieces of a text that just don't fit, right? That that seem to be stuck into a text. Now, again, you know, 
they do it and they reach the wrong conclusion. But on the other hand, the kinds of arguments, the ways they're talking about books, the ways they're talking about books as material objects that can be bound together differently, that might have things inserted in a different way and so on, you know, they contribute. I would say they're, they're these, you know, one of the many rivulets in the larger stream of philology as it develops over time. And that's why I say, you know, I think there is a sense in which this is how, how philology really proceeds, right? You know, it, it, people go by instinct, you know, they don't always have systematic theories. They tend to do things and then talk about what they did later and justify it later with theories and so on. And I, I think that is in some ways a lot of what's the moment that we're living through now with this massive transmission, uh, transition in the way we're dealing with texts and media and so on. We're just going forward, right? We don't really necessarily have a plan. Um, you know, for how we're doing it. And so I think in that sense too, this, that moment, this moment from the past presents another interesting window on the present. And here, I think in the book, you also demonstrate a really fascinating productive tension that we see with, especially with Polizano and his student Carnitas. And this is the idea of a collective knowledge that is also intent, uh, very intimately bound with a scholarly heritage, almost left to the future. Yeah. Most delineating an area of further research, things that we can't tell yet, uh, problems both of interpretation, but then also just lacunae in the actual material record. Mm -hmm. Now, would this be a fair characterization of almost leaving work for the future? And did this, an awareness of the gaps, so to speak, in the classical record, did it also instill any sort of a, a humility in their philological practice? Mm -hmm. You know, I think so, and I and I guess in a couple of reasons. So I mentioned with you know earlier, I mentioned this this thinker Cronitas. Um, um, I guess there's two things we can say. Um, the, the first is that you know I do highlight in one of the in the, in the, in this in the chapter in which these discussions come up this one of these other opening orations that Poliziano gave. Um, this was oddly enough to a course on Aristotle's ethics, but it was called the Panepistemon. And that word is just sort of a hybrid Greek word that just means all knowledge, right? And what he does really, it's almost as if it's a diagram in words. He gives all of these different ways of thinking about human knowledge. Um, and, and you realize that he just keeps branching out and branching out. It really feels like a diagram in words of all the different branches of human knowledge. And so what's clear that that signals to me is that in Poliziano's shop, as it were, there is thinking about you know, we have all of this knowledge that we've discovered. How do we categorize it all? How do we put it together? What do we do with it? I think that this is a real um, little noticed predecessor moment um, to the later 16th century um, kind of crisis of reference books that Anne Blair and her truly brilliant book, Too Much to Know, you know, detailed, right? And such wonderful, um, with such wonderful scholarly acumen. I think that this moment kind of spectrally is behind that, right? Um, and then when we get to Poliziano's student, uh, Cronitas there, and looking to the future, one of Cronitas's heroes was the ancient thinker Suetonius, whom, you know, obviously we know today for his lives of, his sometimes scandalous lives of the Caesars, but he also had this much larger um, philological project called the Grammaticis et Rhetoribus, you know, on grammarians and rhetoricians, in which he basically, you know, was writing this sort of series of short biographies of all these ancient Roman grammarians and rhetoricians, right? And again, very fact-based. And what Cronitas, I think, saw himself as was almost a new Suetonius, 
The only work he finished was the work I highlighted before, this work on Latin poets. He died at a very young age before he could move on, but he was, it's very poignant in a way. He's forecasting that he wants to do all these other works, but it's clear that what he wanted to dedicate him to, this is to say, Cronitas, Feliciano's best student, was really creating a series of reference books, right, that would be useful. And I think that the humility there that you talk about that's there is, you know, this notion that I'm now one of many scholars in an incipient republic of letters who's thinking about lots of these, you know, similar ancient texts. We need some standard reference books just to talk about them. It might be that you make something very different out of what I make of Virgil or of Cicero and so on, but we at least need the same basic facts about them, right? We need the same basic sets of chronologies. We need the same basic sets of, you know, basic biographical facts about them. And again, it's not a coincidence, I think, that Cronitas is the only major work of his like that that did survive. His um, on Latin poets really was printed and reprinted and reprinted um, well, you know, well into the 18th century, as I said. Um, so, so I do think there is this moment there where, you know, they're they're really trying to think through what happens without being. I would say predictive right it's prospective but not predictive and I think that's maybe an important distinction. And I think, along with this, what you just described and also the sort of humility, there is a sort of arrogance, uh, there is a positioning of philology as almost a super discipline above all of them. Uh, you do talk about this how. Um, especially the relationship of theology to uh, theology or theology to philology. And one way I started to try to think about this with the book, how the book pushed me to think about it, was a very interesting sort of matrix for philology. At once with Politano, with uh, the lecture that you analyze in the book, it's defending philology from other disciplines. Yeah. While Politano, as well as Vala and others are also policing it from within. There's kind of a competition in a, in a synchronous sort of way, uh, kind of debates. And there's a sort of medial balance or tension here, mm -hmm. which I found especially, I'd like you to comment on that tension of policing, uh, defending philology from other disciplines. Mm -hmm. from within and then it's almost uh, a little complicated to keep in mind but what your book is really fantastic at doing as well is introducing a, a third element to that which is also an audience that could also fall along with the philologist almost mm -hmm. an armchair philologist or a passive philologist so uh, i was hoping you could comment a little bit on this odd matrix of philology that it could have an audience perhaps even a, a non-professional audience at a certain point with the advent of, of printing but defending it uh, from other disciplines from without policing it with uh, policing itself within almost a kind of philological bubble. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question, and I think I might even add one other element to it, and that is what what's what's your what's one's institutional situation, and what I mean by that, and I and I I talked a lot about this in my earlier book, the intellectual world of the Italian Renaissance. I think one way to think about Renaissance humanism is as um, in some senses, a response to the phenomenal and in some ways very positive growth of universities from the years 1300 to 1500. When you look at the work of somebody like Jacques Berger, you know, you can actually count the number of universities. And, you know, there's something like 15 in the year 1300 across Europe, and there's some well over 60 in the year 1500, right? So they, it's, a, it's a model that works, right, to, to do what it's really intended to do. And importantly, you know, what it's really intended to do is teach students stuff. 
So growingly during those two centuries, right, there's a lot of people who come in and out and they become bachelors of arts, but you know, they have the baccalaureus artsium degree and that gives them a kind of transferable qualification to go and do things in the growing kind of bureaucracies of, you know, late medieval and eventually early modern Europe. At the same time, I think what you see when you look at universities is there's almost always a struggle for what is the regulative discipline? What is the discipline that stands above the other disciplines? And I think in Poliziano's case, when you, know, when you talk about him defending philology from other disciplines, I think he really, almost ironically, right? He thinks of philology as being the discipline that stands over other disciplines. Um, you know, he, he says, for example, I'll just give you this quotation from Islamia. Indeed, the functions of philologists are such that they examine and explain in detail every category of writers, poets, historians, orators, philosophers, medical doctors, and jurisconsults. Our age, knowing little about antiquity, has fenced the philologist in within an exceedingly small circle. But among the ancients, once this class of men had so much authority that philologists alone were the censors and critics of all writers. So you've got kind of everything there, right? You have this imagined golden age of antiquity where the philologist stood supreme, but you also have him in this context of, you know, his most immediate context is working in this disputatious University of Florence, right? In the late 1480s, early 1490s, trying to make a claim that the sort of work he does, I can read across disciplines, right? I can read different disciplines. I can point out mistakes that even people practicing those disciplines aren't quite aware that they're making, right? That's one way to think about it. I think interestingly, you know, paradoxically, I allude to this here and there in the book, by the time you get to 1810 and the Humboldt reforms of the university and the birth of what was called the philosophical faculty in, in Wilhelm von Humboldt's terms, philosophy in this Kantian era becomes the regulative discipline, right? It was thought that all of those disciplines of the incipient arts and sciences in the early 19th century were searching for truth. Philosophy was best at judging truth claims. Therefore, we have the philosophische Fakultät, the philosophical faculty, and therefore eventually, right, is the reason why, you know, people like us who are historians have a PhD, a doctor of philosophy and history, a chemist has a doctor of philosophy and chemistry, right? So there's always been this battle within universities about which discipline stands supreme, um, I think. And then as you say, you know, there, there's Avala, you know, if we, if we circle back to him, who is, you know, really, really being very argumentative from within. I don't know that I'd say that he's um, destroying it, but, he, but as you write, he's policing it, right? He's becoming the person who can kind of, you know, draw the borders around around different things. Although even Vala, right, in, in some of his works makes a similar argument that, you know, I can read across fields and you, you professional colleagues in universities can't, you've imprisoned yourself, right, in one, in one discipline. So I think that too is very lively today. I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it's often very hard for folks in current modern universities um, I'll just give you one example. It's just exceedingly rare that uh, a department will hire somebody with a doctoral degree that's not from their discipline. Even if that person is doing work that's very meaningful in that discipline and could be a great colleague, right? The norms become so different or the, or the perceived norms. So I think whenever you start to organize thinkers, you know, bring them together, create organized knowledge, you're then gonna have this issue of borders 
number one, and number two, which parts of that institution, which parts of that geography should have the right to regulate other parts of it. Um, so there are two, right? Again, there's like this constitutional question, you know, how, how, does, how is your environment of learning constituted? And if we can talk with Polizano of uh, philology reaching almost its apogee at a certain point, and this I think is one of the really grand uh, risks and wagers of the book that comes off brilliantly, I figure just past that apogee, when philology loses that super super disciplinary sort of pretension and mm -hmm. starts to the disciplines start to kind of break up into different lines, is Rene Descartes, yeah. really a fascinating figure. Uh, to consider vis-a-vis -vis the philological tradition, which as you show, he knew intimately and yet turned against it. Or even if we want to think of philology as a sort of scaffolding, he threw that away. Yeah. And I'm hoping you could tell, uh, tell for our reader, readers how you fit Descartes, a figure we don't often really associate with philology into this tradition. How does he fit into the narrative? Yeah. No, I appreciate the question. I guess there's a couple of ways to think about him. The first is that he's you know, often in some ways rightly, given the historiography considered, you know, the, the first figure of what we call modern philosophy. And there's a few reasons for this. The first is that, um, well, let's back up a little bit. I, I think my perspective, the reason I wanted to, to kind of take Descartes on and to have him be a part of this, is that even as he's, he points toward what we now can see are future directions, he's basically um, educated in um, this very, very humanistic way by Jesuits, right? He's educated at, at, at La Fleche, this Jesuit college. Um, the Jesuits were, you know, well, I happen to live two miles away from the great historian, John O'Malley, who's written more about the Jesuits in their history than anyone. And one of the things John always points out is that the Jesuits in some ways succeeded where the humanists failed, which is they got humanistic Latin, classicist, classicizing Latin into respected curricula. Um, and, and the way they did that is they pointed out the utility of it. Um, they pointed out the need for it in current society, but they also were able to bring it together with medieval scholastic theology, which is to say you could think about the kinds of problems that scholastic theologians were thinking about but still have this instrument of classical Latin to express yourself in. So Descartes is educated by Jesuits, right? He goes there as a boy, you know, and in one of his most famous works, his Discourse on Method, he has this passage in the beginning where he says, j'ai été nourri aux lettres de mon enfance. I, 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 was, I was raised, I was nourished on letters from my childhood. And what he means by that, letters, is he means all of the things that would make you in contemporary Latin terminology that alliteratus, meaning somebody who had familiarity with the classical tradition, could read and write in Latin, was habituated to doing so, and was habituated to kind of forming problems in their head with those basic um, structures in mind. But then he goes on to say that this just wasn't enough for him that no matter how much he read, he couldn't really find a basic criterion of truth. He couldn't find a thing by which he could judge other things to be true. And the more he read, the less certain he became. And so he narrates this process of going inside himself um, and of finally coming to something that he just can't refute, which is that he was thinking. He couldn't refute that he was thinking, you know, if 
by not if you weren't being sophomoric, right? He was definitely thinking as such. He realized, okay, I'm a thinking being, um, and because I'm a thinking being, I think, um, therefore I am, right? He says, "Je pense donc je suis." Later translated to Latin as "cogito ergo sum." So he has this foundation on which he can build a philosophy. He then goes on to make arguments about the existence of God. And I find what's interesting about him on that front is part of this book, a kind of um, undertone of this book is to think also about the history of philosophy. Um, he, 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 you know, with that foundation, he, he goes on really to, to think, to, to create in a way, a new way of thinking of philosophy that's very focused on people's minds considered in a certain way. So for Descartes, you know, our minds are very real, on the other hand, meaning they're truly real things. On the one hand, on the other hand, they're also totally immaterial. So the great paradox of what becomes modern philosophy is an epistemological one. How does this immaterial mind know things about um, a physical world, right, in which it's enmeshed, but with which it has no organic physical connection, right? That's really, that's really kind of what happens there. Now, in the history of philosophy, I think Descartes is often really tagged as the founder of modern philosophy for that reason, as effectively, you know, in some ways, the first philosopher of mind as a metaphysician. In his own life, though, as I try to show in the book, he's fundamentally a natural philosopher. He's doing all of that work about his mind to sweep it out of the way, because what he really wants to do is he wants to do experiments. He wants to do scientific experiments. He talks about you know, dissecting the hearts of sheep. He wants people to mail him conclusions that they have. He wants to debate with people about the universe. He has all these plans, you know, to write a treatise about the universe, some of which he shelves because of uh, the Galileo affair. Um, but this does have some consequences in the history of disciplines, including in the history of philology and the humanistic disciplines, which is that it winds up taking philosophy, separating philosophy from natural philosophy, creating a whole modern, eventually ramifying series of disciplines um, that then by the early 19th century, you know, significantly after Descartes, have to respond by promising the same sort of certainty that those by now natural scientific disciplines could achieve. And so I think in a lot of ways, he's a very central figure. I mean, I, I'm, I'm being a little bit provocative in the book saying that, you know, he decides to turn away from this whole literate tradition I think it was always there with him. The way he spoke, the way he wrote, you know, he's saturated with ancient metaphors, right? You couldn't really get away with it if you were raised from childhood, right? With this predominantly Latinate, um, antiquity-oriented education. So I'm not saying he's, he's literally trying to away, but he's performatively doing that. But in doing so, the impact he eventually has, I think is a quite important one. I guess the other thing to note about him too, is that when you go that route, right? When you say that, all of the texts that we now consider authoritative, um, they really just didn't do it for me, right? They, they didn't give me any certainty. I didn't have any certainty. There too, right? Um, he's both a symptom and a cause of um, you know, what's often referred to with a French expression, the crise pironienne, right? A, a skeptical Pironian crisis. Um, that really, you know, as that French moniker indicates, you know, has this center of gravity in France. And so he's also important, I think, because of what comes somewhat after him, um, which we can discuss perhaps, you know, where we also see, you know, the emergence, the mature emergence of printing with movable type 
um, used together with images to find some kind of certainty in this world in which there's this radical environment of dubiety, of doubt, right? You know, of not being able to understand what's certain, of not being able to find a criterion of truth. So for me, you know, he's, he's very meaningful in that way. And, and I think that the history of books, um, you know, it really should engage with the history of philosophy, just because I think that part of the way books, you know, gain authority is they gain authority as truth or not truth bearing instruments, right? Or at least in the realm of scholarship. And so I think Descartes is, 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 is in some ways a key figure, at least he is for me. Um, well, when we look at philology after Descartes, if we really draw that uh, marker in the history of it, perhaps one way to think about it with the French thinkers that you discuss after Descartes, the French philologists, is really what constitutes a philological fact. Yep. What is neutral, objective, provable, apart from our own interpretations even, fact. And here, some of the main figures you discuss are uh, Jean Mabillon, uh, Hardouin. Uh, you discuss the encyclopedists as well. All of these figures are incredibly rich. Um, yep. And perhaps that's a way to bind them together, though. What counts as a fact for them? With Mabillon, we have diplomatics, which I hope you can discuss a little bit vis-a-vis -vis the advent of printed books. With Hardouin, there's tons to discuss there. Um, and then also with the encyclopedists. So perhaps really taking that idea of a philological fact after skepticism, yeah. is there a way, is that a, a binding feature of these French thinkers? Yeah, I think it's very important because so there, one of the things I, I was trying to get at too was thinking about where where was, and again, I'll recur to the, the work of the great um, paleographer Armando Petrucci. He had this phrase called la cultura grafica, graphic culture, the culture of writing, the culture of reading and writing. Um, where was graphic culture? Where was la cultura grafica by, let's say, the mid to late 17th century in France or in Europe in general? You know, um, we know, you know, from the work of a whole host of different people in the history of, of the book, so many things about that world now. Um, we know, for example, that the technology, at least, had reached a kind of a point of perfection, which is to say you, you could publish texts and images together. The images are almost photographic, right? They're engraved, but you could publish images that, that are so detailed that they look almost photographic to us today. So, so one way to think about this moment of, of let's say, uh, Mabillon, who writes his on diplomatics, his De Re Diplomatic in 1681, is he now can avail himself of the mature technology of printing, um, which weds together images and texts. And he does so in response to a skeptical challenge. Mabillon and the order that he belonged to, um, the Maoist order, they were in charge of a whole series of French documents, early medieval French documents, charters. You know, the kinds of things where early French kings, Merovingians and so on would, you know, you know, you know sign, you know, sign treatises for land and things like that, right? The kinds of things that charters are about, legal treatises, things like that. Um, at one point, he is challenged, Mabillon is challenged, his order is challenged by uh, a Jesuit named Daniel Papabroch. Um, and one of the things that pa Papabroch did was he, he basically claimed that many, if not most, of the documents over which Mabillon and his order had control and on which they were working were forgeries. So Mabillon responds, and basically, you know, the, the question is, how can I respond to this? And what he does is he really writes 
the first book that you know we, we can call the first modern instantiation of the discipline of paleography. You know, he talks about the way writing evolved over time, what it looked like, um, gives it descriptions. You know, today we think of paleography as as you know, it's the study of old writing. It's basically a discipline that's concerned with how do you decipher, how do you date, and how do you authenticate documents in the past. You know, we, we tend to have a technical differentiation today between the field of diplomatics and paleography. Diplomatics is doing that stuff with documents, you know, things like, again, treaties, things like that, whereas paleography is doing that kind of stuff, again, you know, dating, authentication, and so on, with literary or, or you know, the kinds of things you'd find in libraries instead of archives. But either way, the impulse is the same. You know, how do you determine if something is authentic? Or as you said, John, how do you determine if something is sort of authentic enough that we can consider it a fact, right? So he writes this, this book, De Re Diplomatic. It's a stunningly beautiful thing. If anybody listening has the chance to you know, visit a good reference library and take a copy out, it's just a thing of beauty to look at as well. It's just worth looking through. And when he does this, what's interesting is the response of this skeptical challenger named Papa Brook. Papa Brook wrote him this beautiful letter and I'll just quote you from the letter. Papa Brook says, at the outset of what I read, I confess that I suffered something human. Soon, however, joy arising from an argument treated so usefully, so solidly, along with the welcome light of truth glimmering everywhere, not to mention the wonder at so many things hitherto unknown to me, all seized me to, to such an extent that I could not contain myself. In other words, this person who was challenging him was persuaded. He wrote Mabillon back. He does so in such a way that clearly evinces emotion. Right, this is not just pure Cartesian reason, right? This is emotion as well. The welcome light of truth, um, you know, uh, washed over me. And so in that sense, we see the book, if we're talking about Mabillon, the book becomes this truth-bearing artifact, right? The, the very fact of it, the arguments that he treated, the way he lined them up, but also clearly the way it was physically presented as a book, the way the images worked side by side with the text, it seemed almost irrefutable. And then you had, you had asked about this other figure named Jean Hardouin, who, who went as Hardouinus in his lifetime. Um, he represents, I would say, the dark mirror image of that same tendency. Hardouin was a Jesuit. Um, uh, he was, and I guess there's a couple of things we can say about him. The first thing is that he was a very, very good philologist. He, he was such a good philologist that he was charged with uh, putting together the edition of Pliny the Elder for the Dauphin series of texts, the Delphino series of texts, which were this new authoritative Latin series in the late 17th century of classical texts. Um, he puts together this brilliant version. It's still used by philologists today. You know, it, it, he's known to have made discoveries about that text. It's a very complicated text because it's, it has images, it's textual transmission is difficult to talk. So on the one hand, he's a good philologist. On the other hand, by the early 1690s, he later writes that he started to have doubts about the authenticity of certain ancient works. He says, I first started to doubt the work of Augustine, right? Augustine, right, who, you know, um, lives from 354 to 430, arguably the most important Latin church father of late antiquity, you know, has the shaping effect on the Middle Ages. Right? He says, I, I started to have doubts in the work of St. Augustine. Then I began to doubt almost everything. And so eventually, Hardouin comes to the conclusion that all of ancient literature 
save for five or six authors, among whom are Herodotus, Homer, um, some but not all of Virgil, interestingly, um, Cicero, his beloved Pliny, everything else was a forgery. He says it was invented by medieval monks to give themselves a backstory for their heretical imaginings. But then I think the most important thing he says, this Jean Hardelin, is the reason we can know this now is because printing with movable type has gotten so mature in our era. Um, we have taken all the books out of the libraries. What he means by that is we've done all that work of discovering texts that earlier humanists did, right? We've taken all the books out of the libraries and now we can compare them. And now I can finally know the truth. And the truth is that all of this stuff was fake. Once he makes that turn, once Hardouin makes that turn in his mind, he then goes and uses those same techniques that he had developed, those line-by-line -line commentary philological techniques to go and, quote, prove, unquote, that, for example, a work like Virgil's Aeneid was a forgery, that it was invented by a medieval Frenchman. He finds Latin expressions in the Aeneid that he says, no, no, that was actually originally a French expression. He calls them Gallicisms. That was a Gallicism. So you see, in a way that's almost startlingly like the QAnon movement today, that even people who are very educated, right, who have the instruments for things, once, once a conspiracy theory takes hold, you use the intellectual armament that you have to prove that the conspiracy in which you've now committed to emotionally, right, because it's a conspiracy is an emotional commitment, you have to prove that that conspiracy is true. And so I think the counterpositioning there of, of Mabillon and Hardouin serves to show that, you know, perfected technologies, in that case, the perfected early, early modern printed book can really have different sides to them, even as I would argue a wonderful set of technologies that we now have available to us, you know, in the internet has different sides to it as well, right? It's democratized information. You can find stuff out quickly, you know, much more quickly than you ever could before, but it also has this dark side, right? Where you can basically surrender to a conspiracy and then find endless amounts of information that seem to buttress it. Um, and it's accelerating now. And so to me, the, the, the counter positioning of those two folks in the 17th century really, really meant a lot along those lines. And I think it makes perfect sense as well with the concluding people of the book, and those are really the encyclopedias with the fascinating little addendum about Thomas Jefferson. If we speak about QAnon, uh, what's often called a post-fact society, mm. up to things like Wikipedia, which you mentioned in your book as well. Yeah. With the encyclopedists, going back to this idea of a philological fact, we also have something like a, phil a, a scholarly neutrality. I almost said philological neutrality. Perhaps those two things are the same, perhaps they're different. And I was wondering if you could comment on why you chose to really end with the encyclopedists or their logical conclusion of yeah. the story, but also why are they the end point? I guess there's a few reasons. The, the first reason was it was a way of winding to a conclusion and seeing how some, again, tendencies, and I'm thinking of this in the Pocock sense versus the sources of influence sense, but certain tendencies that I see as being kicked off by Vala and Poliziano find their way into the work of the encyclopedists. And I, I try to show some passages where, where those things are. Um, you know, some are direct, you know, things like, you know, how does one define philology, for example? How does one define philosophy? That sort of thing. But others are, I think, again, in the, I, when you talk about neutrality, I would say there's a mood underneath it there for them. And the mood is this mood that is partially present in both Vala and Poliziano 
which is to say, we're going to find everything that we know. We're going to list it in as neutral seeming a way as possible. And we're going to put this together now, right, with, again, this, this beautifully developed technology of text and image. Now, if we look back through the prism of the encyclopedist to Vala and Poliziano, what I argue in the book is that Vala and Poliziano had different moods available to them. One of the works that Vala wrote that I talk about in the book, and we mentioned earlier, is called The Elegances of the Latin Language. That's a work that when people refer to it today, they tend to refer to the six prefaces in the work, to the six books. One of them especially is very important in the beginning where Vala very overtly links language and power. He says, wherever the Latin um, language dominates, there too is Roman power, Roman imperium. And so people tend to focus on things like that. What they often don't focus on is the hundreds and hundreds of chapters in the book where Vala is basically just listing stuff. He's listing expressions in Latin. <clears throat> these are the expressions you should use. These are the expressions you shouldn't use. Um, you know, similarly with Poliziano, right? We've seen this, this sort of almost encyclopedic tendency in some of his work that then takes wing in his student, Pernitas. Um, but on the other hand, there were the other moods too, right? There was the mood of Vala that was, as you argued earlier, maybe not destructive necessarily, but, but highly critical, right? Towards certain things, you know, against which one wanted to argue. Um, and so there too, we see some tendencies in the encyclopedists that are like that as well, when they denounce, for example, what they perceive to be religious intolerance or religious zeal, for example. Um, and so, you know, part of the reason I think that they're there is because the work they did was so variegated, it can serve as an interesting lens on which, through which to view some of these far earlier humanists, but also just to see in general, again, in a winding, very serpentine way, where some of those um, literary techniques, strategies of reading, and so on, where they eventuated ultimately by the middle of the 18th century. And there's a great pathos to the book, and perhaps a perfect place to conclude, is that you are yourself an inheritor of these, these methods as a philologist yourself. And I'd be curious to hear about how perhaps returning to these figures might have changed your own practices, but also how you brought your own your own abilities as a philologist to bear on reading these texts. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the things that, you know, um, one of the things I do point out in the book that, that is no matter how you define philology, I think is always attached to philology. And that's just very, very close detailed reading, like attentions to detail, right? And so, so I think for me, that's, that's always been important is, is reading things repeatedly, reading them closely, trying to get behind the language of them. Um, you know, you mentioned pathos. I, you know, once I was talking to, um, a great scholar named Sebastiano Gentile. And he's, he's you know, arguably one of the, if not the leading Pacino scholars in the world, along with a few others. And one of the projects he's engaged in is editing Pacino's letters. And one of the things he's ta he talked about, I remember with me was, you know, at a certain point, Pacino's really like Poliziano, one of the first generations to work directly with printers, right? You know, to, to kind of give his manuscripts directly to printers and, and to help at least partially in some cases to look at the printing process and so on. So we have a final printed version, the case of some of Pacino's letters that he seems to have overseen on the one hand. On the other hand, right, we have versions of those printed versions in which we have further marginal annotations by Pacino. 
which then didn't make it into other printed editions, but were clearly in his hand or the hand of his favorite scribe. So the pathos there, as Gentile explained, is like, what am I supposed to do, right? I'm the editor, I'm a philologist, I'm trying, I, ultimately I have to print something, right? I have to print some kind of a text. How do I decide, is it the final printed version? You know, are we sure that that one little suggested annotation that Ficino might have had in the margin, or am I sure that I should really be putting that in the edition as the main text and so on? So I think that part of, you know, what's there with philology, there is this kind of poignancy to it, right, is that no matter how closely we try to read a text, there are going to be some levels of meaning that, you know, um, will always remain elusive, partially because whenever we talk to any other person, whether it's you and I talking or whether it's me metaphorically talking to a 15th century thinker, there are just certain things about that other discrete individual that we won't be able to know. It's part of the mystery of the humanities, I think. So it's always there with me. And I think it sort of manifests itself in everything I do, including administrative work and everything else, right? You're always trying to kind of figure out, um, you're trying to read things closely and make the best decisions that you can. Well, hopefully the administrative work won't take away from your next projects, if I could <laughs> ask about that. Oh yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I'm working on right now is actually a, a, a very, for a general audience, a general history maybe not even a history, but a historical account of the arts and sciences, one that reaches back into the ancient liberal arts, the late ancient liberal arts, the medieval arts faculties, Renaissance universities, and then has a kind of culminating moment in the 1810 Humboldt reforms of the university, um, and then why that matters now. And the reason, the reason I'm doing that is, I, you know, with the more administrative experience they have, the more I realize that that story isn't as well known as it could be. Universities, especially in the US, are under great pressures from markets and from boards and things like that. And I think we need to be able to tell that story, to tell the kinds of discoveries that have come out of those, those processes. Um, so that's what I'm working on little by little. I'm a tortoise, so I, I work a little bit every day. I try to do something every day, but it's always a little, so. And just to conclude with a traditional question, keeping an eye to the present, are there any younger scholars, younger philologists, classicists, historians whose work you've been reading who you'd really like to recommend to our, our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I did, I did cite this book that I found um, very interesting by Yi John Lin, whom I never met, called The Erotic Life of Manuscripts, New Testament Criticism and the Biological Sciences. Um, I, I found that that was a very fascinating way to link up thinking about philology with, you know, the development of natural sciences. Um, it, it's something very interesting. I think, you know, the work of Emily Levine has been very important. Um, there's a really good book uh, that, that, that was important for me in this book too by um, Alexander Rag Morley. Uh, that's W-R-A-G-G-E Morley. Um, I just wanna find the exact title. It's Aesthetic Science Representing Nature in the Royal Society of London, 1650 to 1720. And, you know, there too, I think what you're starting to see is the range of the ways you can interpret what sometimes seem to be overly rationalistic practices like science when you start to bring emotions and, and, and contemporary approaches to feelings to how people um, read the science. So those are just some, but I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of wonderful scholars doing great work out there. Well, Professor Salenza, this has been a fantastic conversation. And as our listeners could probably guess, I would highly recommend your book, The Italian Renaissance and the Origins of the Modern Humanities in Intellectual History, 
1400 to 1800, which appeared with Cambridge University Press just a few months ago. And with that, once again, thank you for your time. This has been fantastic and also inspiring for me as an historian. Well, John, thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure talking. Thank you.